Welcome to the Sand Hills Media Ministry. We hope this production encourages and challenges you to live a more Christ-centered life. Uh, so with that, uh, let us move now to 1 Samuel chapter 15. If you have your Bibles handy, pull out 1 Samuel chapter 15. I have been loving our journey through 1 Samuel. And by the time we get to 1 Samuel 15, it is, it's also fun, but it's not fun for King Saul in this chapter. So the there's the titles, which aren't original to the original text, uh, but the titles have been put in there to kind of help you know what's coming. What title do you have over 1 Samuel 15? What's written in your Bible? The Lord rejects Saul. Not a great start if you're Saul. You don't want to read that over the title of your, um, of your chapter. Uh, so this is about the rejection of Saul, and that's definitely what we're going to see. Now, in 1 Samuel 14, if you've been following with this, we just saw this kind of epic battle, and we saw a real distinction between King Saul and his son, Jonathan. Like, Jonathan, his son, is just a man of courage, a man of faith, a man of, like, if God is in this, how can we fail? Let's do this. And then King Saul's like, well, let's wait. Let's see what happens. Let's pray more. We don't have the numbers, you know, that kind of thing. And so we kind of had a contrast. Now, between chapters 14 and 15, probably some years have passed. So they're not necessarily back-to-back, even though we would read them back-to-back. There's been some time in between. So let's go ahead and just start jumping into it and uh, read a little bit about the judgment of God, verses 1 through 3. And Samuel said to Saul, the Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now, therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. All right, well, we've always, already started this chapter really strongly. Uh, there's a lot going on here. Let's start with the first part, which is easier. Samuel said to Saul, the Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now, therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. So why would, why would this chapter start that way? And I think it starts that way because of this. Like Saul is already getting a little bit full of himself. He's already starting to presume upon his own authority and, uh, and do things he's not supposed to do. Like previously, we saw him uh, play the role of the priest, which he was not allowed to do. Uh, and then even in a way, by his lifestyle and his choices, question the will of God. And you're going to see that very directly and distinctly as we go forward in this. But what Samuel's saying is this. Samuel says, Saul, listen, you may be in charge now. There's been a handoff from, from this uh, theocracy where the priest kind of led everything and God was the king to now we have an earthly king. So Samuel's saying, listen, I know there's been a change. I know you're the king. But you wouldn't be king if God hadn't used me to make you king. So you do not have the luxury of disregarding his word right now. You need to listen. And that's how he sows this next part. Then verse 2. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now the story may not be as familiar to all of you. So if you take notes, this would be a great place to write this down. Uh, You would write down Exodus chapter 17 verses 8 through 13. Exodus 17, verses 8 through 13. Uh, so I'll tell you a little bit of the story. For those of you who've read a good bit of the Bible, it'll make sense to you. So uh, this is when Moses is leading the people and they're, they're headed out of Egypt. They're gonna go claim the promised land that God has said they could have. They're headed that direction and on their way, they get attacked by Amalek and the people that we would call the Amalekites. And so as they're being attacked, um, Moses pulls aside Joshua 
his right-hand man, and he says to Joshua, Joshua, gather the fighting men, and I want you to go out, and I want you to fight this battle. And so uh, the Israelites go, and they and the Amalekites are having it out, and Moses is in the background. He's got this really cool staff uh, that God has used to do some really neat things. So uh, he's out there watching the battle, and he holds up his staff. He's like, let's go. Like, I don't know that he shouted that, but that's just what I would think. So let's go. He holds up the staff, and when he holds up the staff, Israel starts to dominate the Amalekites. And so he's holding the staff over his head. So I don't know if you've ever had to hold your arm over your head for a prolonged period of time, like if you've been painting a ceiling or if you, even if you go to change a light bulb. But after a while, you know, you're like, whoo, got to get some blood circulating in that thing. You know, like I'm losing my feeling. So he's holding it up and he realizes he can't hold it up all this time. And so uh, then what happens is two guys who are next to him, Aaron and her, if you're interested in trivia, they come and they grab his arm and they hold, help hold his arm up over his head. Uh, and maybe both arms if you want to do it that way. Although I did wonder, like, could he just switch? Like, I don't know. Either way. So he held it up. And then I'm thinking, man, how much blood is out of that arm by the end of his day? But either way. So he's holding it up and then they have this victory, this great victory. Uh, but God made this pronouncement right after that. Exodus chapter 17, verse 14. We'll put it up here for you. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. All right, so uh, God's got a great memory, and he remembered the sin of the Amalekites. And one thing you may not be putting together, but let me help you. It's been four to 500 years since the event, and now God is bringing his judgment and it just reminds me, when you're dealing with an eternal being, like his time frames are just different, different than ours. Because like a lot of times we're begging God, I need your answer right now. And he's like, okay, I'll give it, uh, very quickly I'll give it to you. But quickly to God, mm, that could be a long time. So either way, he does this, but maybe not in the time frame they expected. But here's the question I would have for you, and that's the next part. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all they have. And you're going to kill man, woman, child, and infant all right, so how do we reconcile a loving God calling for what we would call genocide? Well, here's a better question. Is God being cruel? Well, does God have the capacity to be cruel? See, here's the difference. You and I, we have the capacity to be cruel. I don't think God's got that capacity. As the giver of life and sustainer of life, he also has the right to take life. So here, he's taking life in judgment of sinful people. Now, I mean, hopefully you would sit back and go, okay, well, I can, I can kind of see that. Well, let's remember this, though. God is also executing judgment on us. Like, none of us is getting out of here alive unless Jesus returns, which would be awesome anytime, Lord. But this whole idea of, like, you're going to die. Your body's going to get older. It's going to decay. It'll stop working like it used to. And then eventually you'll pass from this earth. That's just how it works. So we're all under a judgment from God that will lead to physical death. Now we're just arguing timing. Right? And, and in this case, he's saying, I just want you to go wipe everybody out. I was thinking about this uh, yesterday. So I was doing lawn work yesterday, and I had this weedy section that my wife wanted me to take care of. So I went in there, and I took out all these weeds. And I, it just kind of struck me. It's like, oh. So God really, when it comes to the garden of the earth, is just weeding his garden when it comes to this kind of thing. Now, you might say, I don't think that's the same thing. Okay, granted, granted. Uh, let's read this from Deuteronomy chapter 20, verses 16 through 18. So this is uh, uh, talking to the Israelites who are taking the land of Canaan. But in the cities of these people that the Lord your God has given you for an inheritance, you shall save alive nothing that breathes, but you shall devote them to complete destruction. The Hittites and the Amorites, the Canaanites and the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded. 
All right, now here, this is really important. This next part's really important. That they may not teach you to do according to all their abominable practices that they have done for their gods, and so you sin against the Lord your God. So the reason God says to do this is they're gonna, they're gonna pollute you if you live among them. Because this is what happens. You live among sinful people and you want to love them and you want to be a part of their lives and you want them to be a part of your life. And so in that journey, as you begin to develop a love for them, well, then you really want to be able to approve of the things that they do. And so initially it's kind of a battle, but eventually you kind of begin to accept the things that they do. And then after you accept the things they do, then you begin to endorse the things they do. And then after you endorse the things they do, you practice the things they do. And so in this sense... It is actually a, a condemnation on the modern church. Uh, this is exactly what happens to us. We live among a sinful people. We want them to feel loved and valued, so we love on them. Uh, and then we begin to accept some of the things they do that are not quite in line with the word of God. And then we begin to endorse or celebrate the things they do. And then if we're not careful, we'll practice the things they do. Um, and this is exactly why God said, I want you to take them out. They're going to pollute you. So uh, Dr. Ben Noonan is the uh, professor of Old Testament and uh, Hebrew over at Columbia International University. He was in second service. Um, but since he's not here now, I, I can just blame him for everything. But uh, one, one thing he said was, uh, he and I were having a conversation about this. And he said, well, here, I want you to understand something about this passage. God doesn't have a double standard. He judges everyone, including the Israelites, because even they get exiled and killed for their disobedience. Any aspect where we don't receive judgment is just a grace of God. Here, the king has demonstrated his wickedness in opposing Israel. And in opposing Israel, he's opposing God. And that doesn't happen without consequence. The people were wicked, their kids are going to grow up to be wicked, and they will corrupt others. This is literally a part of how God is working out his salvation, and he's using it to bring deliverance for us all, and ultimately, we'll use this thread of salvation to lead to Christ. And so, really, it is in our best interest that God does this thing, even though to us as humans it's distasteful. And it would be bad if you were the one that came up with the idea. But when God comes up with the idea, we submit to that. Uh, there's a book I'd recommend to you. I actually have it on my bookshelf called, Is God a Moral Monster? Making Sense of the Old Testament God. Written by a guy named Paul Copan. I'm going to give you a quote from it. This is one Dr. Noonan shared with me. However, we view the Canaanite question. Okay, so this is when Israel wiped out the Canaanites, or, or they were told to. However, we view the Canaanite question. God's heart is concerned with redemption. This becomes especially evident in how low God was willing to go for our salvation. Dying naked on a cross, enduring scorn and shame, and suffering the fate of a criminal or a slave. Since God was willing to go through all of this for our salvation, the Christian can reply to the critic, while I can't tidily solve the problem of the Canaanites, I can trust a God who has proven his willingness to go to such excruciating lengths and depths to offer rebellious humans reconciliation and friendship. So I don't know if this makes it any easier, but this is maybe a way to think about this and to reconcile this. So now we've gone from this judgment of God pronounced upon the Amalekites and given to Saul through Samuel. Now to, in verse 4, Saul's going to have to make a judgment on what he's going to do with this. Let's start in verse 4. So Saul summoned the people and numbered them in Telaim, 200,000 men on foot and 10,000 men of Judah. First of all, if you were with us in chapter 14, this is much better than the 600 men he had around him and 3,000 in his standing army. Uh, so now he's got a bunch of people. Uh, verse 5, and Saul came to the city of Amalek, and he lay in wait in the valley. And then Saul said to the Canaanites, go depart, go down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For he showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Canaanites departed from among the Amalekites. 
And Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fatted calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. All right. Well, now... Oh, now we have a problem. <laughs> now we have a problem. Uh, you, can't, you can't just do what you want when it comes to the will of God. Um, I'm pretty sure the command given to Saul and his army was basically Operation Scorched Earth. Um, they were supposed to wipe them out, wipe out everything they had. Um, this was about fulfilling the word of the Lord. This was not about Saul. Saul can't overrule God in this instance. Now, probably Saul, if you talk to him and said, Saul, why would you do that? Saul would say, okay, listen. In our culture, when a king conquers, he's allowed to take from those that he conquers. And it is common practice among some of us to preserve the life of the head of the people, even though you would wipe out the people. So this is just kind of common stuff. And then we might reply, yeah, but that's not what God said for you to do. You have now violated what God said for you to do. So there's a phrase I want to give you. As parents, you can use this. I use this as a parent. Or as a child, you can just receive this. Uh, so it's this. Partial obedience is disobedience. If you only do part of what I said, you're disobedient. Partial obedience is disobedience. And so you have not fulfilled the word of the Lord in doing part of it. And uh, there was this comment even made here. So they went, they went to attack the city of Amalek. So the Amalekites, I said, are, are, they're wicked people. Um, but they're also like, they're the Tuscan Raiders of the Old Testament. They're a warring, nomadic, desert folk. Um, they will... Um, ambush a town, take the resources, kill the people, and then leave. And then they'll go back to the desert and retreat to the desert. God has sent Saul into the desert to kill them, and he kills some and plunders. And so this is not quite, not quite what you should be doing. So this whole idea of like, he kept alive, he didn't obey, it reminds me of people who will bend the word of God. Because I think, again, talking to Saul, I think he would say, oh, no, no, like we're, we're doing what God called us to do. But then also... And we'll see more of this before we're done here. He'll add to it. Um, so it reminds me, though, of people who, when we're talking about the scripture, uh, will say something like this. Well, I, no, I get, I get what you're saying. But what God's word means to me is, or what this scripture here means to me, and whenever I hear somebody say a phrase like that, what this scripture means to me, I just want to shout out, irrelevant. <laughs> it's irrelevant. Whatever you're about to say, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what it means to you. It, it, it matters a lot what it means to God. And I just, I really, I have very little patience for people who will say something like this. Well, these very smart people over here, they believe this. And these very smart people over here believe something different. And so at the end of the day, you know, like we don't, we don't really know. Like, okay, is that what you think this is? Think it's just a free for all? Anybody can believe whatever they want to believe? You think that's how God intended it? Well, that means something to you. It means something to you. Okay, just do the best you can. Like, that's not what this is. This is God's written word to us. Now, there are times when we don't understand it, but our call is certainly to try to understand it. And we know that God had one meaning, unless there were multiple, which occasionally he does have multiple. But this is not a free-for-all for people to believe what they want to believe. So we have to submit ourselves to this, and that's not what Saul is doing. He's not submitting himself to this. So now, therefore, he is subject to the judgment of God. And now we find ourselves in verse 10. So the word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret 
that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. That's interesting. I regret. I regret. Like, that you've done this a little bit in your own mind, I'm sure, at times. Like, how can God regret? Like, God, did you not know? And then, of course, God would cut us off and go, I knew. <laughs> like, because you start doing this and you end up back at the garden, right? Well, if God knew that Adam and Eve would sin, why would he? And then you can insert any question there. And that question works for everything. And here's what we realize. What you're really trying to do is reason yourself into an understanding of God. But I would argue this. You don't even understand yourself. How in the world do you think you will ever, ever understand an omnipotent, omniscient, uncreated being? Like, it's just never, you're never going to get there. So uh, we find that we keep trying to put God in judgment, and really we just need to forget that and go, this is just who God is. But in the sense of God regretting, can God regret as though he, he made a mistake? No. In this sense, when God is speaking, he's simply being uh, anthropopathic is what he's doing. Anthropopathic. You just need to have, that's a $10 word. I'm giving it to you for free today. It's like, uh, it's like anthropomorphic, which I told somebody earlier was more like an $8 word. So anthropomorphic you get. Like if I look at this chair, it's an empty chair. And I say, look at this chair. It's just sitting here doing nothing. I'm attributing human activity characteristics to an inanimate object. So to be anthropopathic means that um, I'm taking a non-human and we're talking about emotions in the realm of a non-human having those kind of human emotions. And so that's what would be going on here. So I think if, if God were speaking to us and he's having this conversation and he's allowing some dialogue, which he is not doing, but if he was allowing some dialogue here and you're like, well, God, how can you regret? I think God would say, okay, hold on. I'm just speaking in a way that you'll understand. And then we would go, oh, okay, I, I get it, I get it. And the reason he regrets is because when he appoints Saul, and he knew everything. He knew Saul would reject. He knew everything Saul would ever do. He knows everything you, <laughs> this reminds me of this too. God knows everything we'll ever do, and yet Jesus died for us anyway, right? So if you think about it, like, yeah, we're kind of living the same reality. So God knew everything was going on, but with Saul, there was this idea of this covenant, like, I'm choosing you. I'm going to make you king, but then I expect you to do the things I've called you to do. And so in that sense, Saul's violating his covenant. And since Saul is violating the covenant that he had with God, now God's saying, I regret. And again, speaking in a way that we would understand. We're going to come back to that. That regret thing is going to pop back up. But let's keep going. And Samuel was angry and he cried to the Lord all night. And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning. And it was told Samuel... Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself. He set up a monument for himself. Like, that's when you know you've, you've gone too far. Like, that's, that's when you don't have enough close people to you going, dude, what are you, what are you doing here? Like, you know, I could just picture, you know, putting a statue out in front of sand hills of just me, you know, waving as you come in, you know. Uh, yeah, that would be my last day on earth probably. So this is... <laughs> This is what he raises a monument to himself. I mean, it's just, it's just so bad. And he turns and he passed on. He went down to Gilgal, verse 13. And Samuel came to Saul and Saul said to him, blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. Have you? I mean, did, did you really? Is that what we're seeing here? You really? So this is what I'm wrestling with as I, as I read this, but we'll know the answer before we're done. Like, does he really think he has performed the commandment and the will of the Lord? Is that what he's really thinking here? Or is he just trying to convince himself? Or is he just trying to convince Samuel? Or is he trying to convince God that he's really done the will of the Lord? Um, whatever's going on here, he is absolving responsibility, and I would call it blame shifting. And the blame shifting gets very pronounced right away. 
So Samuel does respond. Uh, what then is the bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? Now, again, we've got to go back into the scene just a little bit. You, you do realize for, for Samuel to walk in to meet with Saul right now, he is passing tons of animals. I mean, not just, they, they have just pilfered all of the good stuff from the Amalekites. There's a ton of animals there. So when he's going to meet with Saul, he is walking through all of these animals, all this plunder, and wherever the king who they pulled aside, who was supposed to be dead at this point, walks in. And then right in the middle of this, Saul steps out and like, I have fulfilled the word of the Lord. And Samuel's like, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? Like, what is, what is all of this? So now we, we have to find out how he's going to respond here. So what is all of this stuff that's supposed to be devoted to destruction? And then this, verse 15. Saul said, they have brought them from the Amalekites for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God and the rest we have devoted to destruction. I'm sorry, what was that, Saul? So this is what I love. Uh, Saul's supposed to be king, supposed to be leading the people. You've been appointed to lead the people. Lead the people in honoring the Lord, but he doesn't do that. He comes out, Samuel's like, what, what is all this stuff? Saul's like, oh, here's the deal. So these people, they're the ones who decided to take the best of all of these, and you know what they decided they're gonna do? They're gonna take them, and they're gonna sacrifice them to your God. So I don't know who you're mad at right here, whether it's the people or maybe your God, but one thing's for sure, it's not me, right? I didn't do anything wrong. And this is the whole thing with this whole blame shifting. I mean, you just become an excuse factory and you're just churning them out one after the other. It's not me, it was somebody else. It's these people, that's what's going on. Uh, and then it finally gets to a point where Samuel can't take it anymore. Verse 16, then Samuel said to Saul, stop. I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And he said to him, speak. You ever just get to that point where you're just so tired of all the excuses that are pouring out of somebody? You just want to say, stop. I know what you're doing. You know what you're doing. Don't say anything else. That's exactly what, what Samuel's trying to shut down in this moment. And then uh, we encounter a little bit of this judgment of Saul, how he's viewing himself, verse 17. So Samuel said, though you're a little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel. And the Lord sent you on a mission and said, go devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took of the spoil, the sheep, the oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. So again, right, right confronted with all this stuff, he's like, no, listen, I am doing the right thing. But I do want to draw attention to what Samuel says about Saul's actions. He says, Saul... You've committed evil. Partial obedience is disobedience. You're doing evil right now. You've committed evil in the eyes of the Lord, and God judges evil. And, and let's just assume for a second the best of intention, what I don't, which I don't think we can. But when we try to outreason God, we're already in trouble. There's another step of this, though. When you allow, if he's telling the truth, when you allow the people around you to influence you against the will of God then you're also in trouble. Like, you, and you can't blame other people for your sin. So there's all sorts of messiness going on here. So now we get to a judgment of God, um, which I love in verse 22. 
Samuel said, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. So these couple of verses, verses 22 and 23, these are the warm middle of your cinnamon roll. These, this is the golden stuff right here. I love this, and especially this phrase, to obey is better than sacrifice. Now, Samuel is not speaking ill of the sacrificial system. He's not speaking ill of making offerings to God. What he is speaking ill of is Saul's presumption in light of them. The, and if you'll notice too, as we're going through this, the, the battle, which was probably an epic battle, got like one sentence in this whole paragraph, or in this whole uh, passage, the whole uh, chapter. The, the biggest thing here is how we respond to God. And that's why this is recorded for us. So the whole thing, like the battle's irrelevant, but how we respond to God is of supreme importance. And this is what Saul doesn't understand. So Samuel says this, look, God doesn't need your offerings. He's not like a pagan God that you gotta sacrifice to appease to make him happy. And we can't do that either. There's no way for you to appease God through your activity. So if you were to say, like, hey, you know what? I am gonna fast all day today, or I'm gonna, I'm gonna fast for a couple of days or, or longer uh, just to show God just how serious I am about him. Look, you just need to know something. Your fasting doesn't do anything for God. Like, it doesn't appease him, doesn't make him happier, like, any spiritual practices we go through, and I, I believe in spiritual disciplines for sure, but they're for us. <laughs> they're, they're for us to be reminded of the significance and the magnitude of God, but they don't sway God in any kind of way. But here's something we do to be reminded of. To reject the word of the Lord is to reject the Lord. Those who claim to love God but disobey his word are only deceiving themselves. And people will tell me that, because uh, especially when they find out I'm a pastor, they'll say to me like, oh, you know, I love the Lord. And there's always a, a cynical part of me that's kind of like, I don't know, maybe. Like, I can't take your word for it. <laughs> like, I just have to see how you live your life. That's how you can tell if somebody loves the Lord. But people who just verbally love the Lord don't love the Lord at all. Uh, people love him with their lives, then we can see a difference. So we go forward now, verse 24. So Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Oh, so Saul did know what he was doing. He did know. He knew what he was doing and he knew why he was doing it. I have sinned. I have transgressed. And the reason I did it was because I feared the people and I obeyed their voice. Like I feared the people and think about it this way. I feared the people more than God. I fear the people more than God. That's what he's saying through his actions. It reminds me of a proverb. Uh, Proverbs chapter 29, verse 25 says this. The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. So one of the biggest dangers for us, I'm gonna revisit it in our lessons learned at the end of this. One of the biggest struggles for us is we want so desperately to be accepted by the people around us. So much so that we will find ourselves being swayed in the things that we choose to do and choose to believe based more on them than we do the word of God. Maybe not everybody, but that's very common. And uh, when that happens, you begin to fear man more than God, then is, that's when you get in trouble. 
And so then you end up uh, going with where we are now. Let's go to verse 25. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin. Return with me that I may bow before the Lord. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you for you have rejected the word of the Lord and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. As Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe and it tore. And Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. Ouch. Oh, that's a, you know, first of all, kudos to the spontaneous prophecy. I mean, like, so as Samuel's walking away, Saul grabs, rips his robe, and he turns around and goes, oh yeah, that's just how God has ripped the kingdom from you. And you know what else? He's gonna give this kingdom to somebody better than you. I mean, I cannot imagine <laughs> delivering that to the king of all of Israel. And that's exactly what he does. He just drops that bomb that like, you know what? You're no longer worthy of this and gives him this prophecy. Um, verse 29, and also, the glory of Israel, is a reference to God, the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. Yeah, but I didn't, but you said earlier, <laughs> like, here's the thing. So the idea of the regret of God, is, so this is the second time we're seeing it. Let me go ahead and take you to the end of 1 Samuel 15. Verse Samuel 15, go all the way to verse 35. And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death, but Samuel grieved over Saul and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. So this is one of those areas where, again, I was talking to Dr. Noonan in the, I was like, tell me how the Hebrews work in here. What do you see in here? How's this go? He said, all right, here's the thing you need to know. Like context is everything. Because even in English, we know you can use the same word in a different context and it means something different. And so context means everything. But it is the same word being used here. It, it's the same uh, verbal construction each time. Uh, but the context gives us some input in how to understand it. And to translate it the same way, like I bet not everybody's translating translation in here has regret for all of those. Some of you may have different words, um, but it is actually the same uh, verbal construction. So we just have to let context guide us. And again, that first one, again, where God's like, I regret I've made Saul king. And even at the end, I regret I've made Saul king. Like that idea is again, where God's being, you know, like, hey, I'm just speaking to you in a language you'll understand. But here, when he says, um, the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, what he's saying there, now that's specific to that instance. God is taking the kingship from you and he, he doesn't change his mind. He's not gonna change his policy on this. So that one's specific to that event. So there's kind of nuances to the way this is being used, but that's kind of how it works out. Um, but we're not done. Let's uh, keep going a little bit here. Uh, so after verse 29, verse 30, then he said, I have sinned yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel and return with me that I may bow before the Lord, your God. So Samuel turned back after Saul and Saul bowed before the Lord. Then Samuel said, bring here to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully. Agag said, surely the bitterness of death is past. And Samuel said, as your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. Well, that got ugly pretty quick. I mean, why, and here I am, I'm picturing the priest here. I mean, so, you know, bring me the king. And as the king is coming, he goes over, he takes one of the soldier's swords and just runs the dude through. And then the scripture is quite clear, hacks him to pieces. Like, I don't even think I'd want to see that in a movie. Like, I, like I get it. I mean, usually that's enough for me to get it. But then I'm picturing the, the finish of this grisly scene with a Samuel kind of slumped over, holding a sword, covered in blood, out of breath, throwing the sword down, walking away and going, that's how you honor God. 
And I'm like, dude, you're a beast. I mean, what is going on here? This is crazy stuff. Um, all right, we're not going to dwell anymore on that. I think we got enough of that. So uh, something going on there, but that's what obedience looks like is when we're like, you know, I'm going to do what God said to the nth degree, and that's how Samuel lived. So now for us, what are lessons we can learn as, uh, as we study this? And I think that's very important. So Pastor Malcolm has this phrase that he uses. Uh, by the way, he's still on sabbatical. He'll be, <laughs> he'll be back soon. But Pastor Malcolm uses this phrase that I love. He says, you know, when I'm trying to evaluate the sin of people, I'm trying to think through whether the person is weak or they're wicked, whether they're weak or wicked. And those are a couple of categories I think we tend to fall into from time to time as we choose sin. Um, but first, let's talk about the wicked category. And the wicked category, for them, this phrase has been given, uh, which it was to Saul, whose actions are called evil. To obey is better than sacrifice. To obey is better than sacrifice. That is something we need to remember. It is not about how much you go to church or read the Bible or the things you do or the money you give away. None of that really matters if your heart isn't for the Lord. Like if you're not walking with the Lord, it's irrelevant. You can never get to a place where you say, yeah, I do all these great things. I do all these wonderful things. I'm sure God is pleased with me, but I do have this little bit of sin over here. And it's just, I just can't, I can't, you know, I, I can't overcome it. Well, like that little bit of thing you're holding on to, that's evil. Like you need to reject that. You've got to fight against that. You've got to overcome that. Um, that's something you've got, to, you've got to be very concerned about that. To obey is better than sacrifice. The other stuff is irrelevant. Uh, we need to walk with the Lord. Uh, and then the second thing I, I would say is this. Resist the urge to be celebrated by culture. Resist the urge to be celebrated by culture. We're in this really weird situation where as Christians... And I get it. We want to be liked by everybody. You know, we live among people who don't believe what we believe, and they have very different lifestyles and, and different morals, and we would love to just get along with them and, like, have them love us, and we could love them, and uh, we could value kind of who they are in their lives, and they value our lives, but, but at the end of the day, it's just never going to work. It's oil and water. I mean, their, their whole mindset is just different than ours, and if we're not careful, we find ourselves lapsing back into the sin that God was trying to prevent with the Israelites, where we live among a people who have different beliefs, and then we begin to accept those beliefs, then we begin to accept them, and then we begin to endorse them, then we celebrate them, and then we find that even in the church, we're practicing these immoral pagan beliefs, and so we have to be careful of that. It really came to light for me um, about a year ago, year and a half ago. Um, I was preaching a message, and in the context of the message, it brought up uh, homosexuality. And I just said, homosexuality is a, a sin before the Lord, and you have to repent of that. And um, I don't think I made much of it, but I was talking about it. And then I got a very direct email uh, after that service from somebody in our congregation um, who, who just kind of blasted me for, for my, my stance on it. And I was like, well, that's really not my stance. It's, it's God's stance on it. And, uh, and I'm not saying I'm better than anybody. Like, I have to repent of my sin, too. I'm not saying I'm better than anybody. Uh, but I'm just saying, as a culture, we can't sign off on something that God has called immoral. Um, now, I asked the person if they would meet with me, and she didn't want to meet with me, so I understand. Uh, and then she left the church, which was also sad. Um, but when it, it comes to how we live our lives, like, we're bound to the Word of God. And we need to learn a lesson from Saul. We can't be swayed by the people that surround us. If God says it, I'm in. It's not always comfortable for me either, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna bank my faith on this. I'm gonna put my full trust, for us as New Testament Christians, my full trust in Jesus Christ. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for this reminder uh, of God's word and how important it is. And Lord, we wanna be people who as we study what you've revealed to us, that we submit ourselves fully to it. Father, we know the ultimate revelation of your word was in your son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so Jesus, we turn our attention to you this morning and we're so delighted that we don't have to work hard to earn the favor of God. 
It's a free gift through the sacrifice of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And by putting our faith in you, Lord, we, we have the forgiveness that we need. But Lord, you have also called us to obedience. And so may we be a people who, having submitted to Christ, will walk now in obedience, trusting you and living your word in your holy name. Amen.